Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. I've kind of made a promise to myself, um, I think in the last week or so, that it's important for me to um, allow God to use me as God would use me. It's uh, important to stay true to that, don't you think? Yeah. And you know, when you're a pastor, you have a lot of people who think you should do things in a particular way or have a particular type of ministry or a particular sort of gifting. And uh, it's very easy to, to fall into the trap of trying to uh, meet those needs in people. And I, I can't, so I wanted to apologize publicly. I can only be who I am. And Paul uses this phrase that he is who he is by the grace of God. And uh, and, and fundamentally, uh, I'm a prophetic evangelist, really. That's probably the calling on my life. God has used me many times to see people come to faith. And so I'm back on that journey of just seeing that again, just trusting that the Lord will use that again. And um, I, I imagine that it's going to get a little bit different. <laughs> You're a bit nonplussed. That's a good response. Thank you very much. How different, someone was saying, how different could it be? It's really already crazy. How different could it be? A couple of weeks ago, we started this conversation, um, a conversation, I think, that came out of a prophetic place in my life where I understood that the best possible uh, preparation that I could ever take the church through for the future was not to continue talking about subject matters that perhaps for many of us we're familiar with, but actually to delve down a little bit deeper into how God strategically places the church for any move of the Holy Spirit. And um, one of the things that I think that's become more clear to me in these last few weeks is that we really do need to take our small groups a lot more seriously than we currently are. They are not something that we're adding to the life of the church. They are the church. The small groups are the places and the spaces where God does His greatest work in individuals. And as a smaller community, we get the chance to learn from one another. We get the chance to uh, see God working through another person. And there's a massive difference between that kind of community and what happens on a Sunday. Because on a Sunday, if we're really honest, we're just a crowd. I mean, I don't know you. I know you. But I don't know all of you, and you don't know me, and we don't know each other that well. If you've been here for 300 years, you might have a better handle on some of that. Okay? But this is a crowd. It's a crowd. And um, it cannot and will not be able to fulfill every part of your desire to have good godly connections and relationship and the discipleship process of growing more and more to become like Jesus and to be released in your ministry and to identify your calling. All of those things cannot all happen on a Sunday. And when we come with that kind of expectation, all we are left with is disappointment. And disappointment causes people to move out of the church. You know, people say the church is a hospital. What they're really saying is this, I need help. The church is not a hospital because it's also an army. Okay? It's a royal priesthood. We have prophets, priests, and we're being made like our king. So whatever we particularly think the church should be, what we do is we project that, that kind of image on a community. And when 
inevitably, we are disappointed that we didn't get what we were searching for or needing, we move on to another church with the same expectations and more pain and an inability to trust because <laughs> that comes out of that process and we just do the same thing over and over again. And I think someone who was very clever said, madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. So I think it's really important sometimes to stop and to pay attention to some things. As our church grows, and it is growing, we have to find more meaningful, more significant ways of relating to one another. A handshake and a hug won't do it. And when people come and they have particular needs and, and problems and circumstances, we rely heavily on some prophetic word to be able to administer something of a reflection of the compassion and the mercy of Jesus. You know, and that's a very dodgy place. Because if the pastor's not had a good week or whoever's leading the meeting, there won't be a prophetic word. And somebody might be sitting here who just wants someone somewhere in this room to acknowledge that they need Jesus in a particular way and to put their arm around them and to say to them, you know, I don't know what you're going through, but I've been through things and I just want to let you know I care. I care what's happening to you. So for me, this is not a conversation about some extra program in the church. For me, this is actually where God wants to build this church and he wants to build it in a number of ways. You do realize that the Holy Spirit wants you to be more like Jesus, don't you? In case you had any doubt what the will of God was for your life, that's the will of God for your life. Now, Jesus, Jesus was the Word. So, if we are to become like Jesus, we have to grow to a point in our relationship with God where the Word lives in, it, in us. Not that we can recite it or, you know, preach it or any of those things, but actually, the Word needs to become flesh in us. And how does that happen? That can't happen in a meeting like this particularly easily. Sometimes God speaks prophetically. Often people come and say to me, I feel like you're talking to me. I'm not. If I'm honest with you, I feel like most Sundays I'm talking to myself. So if you're hearing anything... <laughs> I'm really grateful that God got through. That's all I'm going to say to you on that matter. Okay? So, how do we allow the Word to become flesh? Does this environment encourage and facilitate some of that? Well, to a degree, hopefully the things that we communicate have value. But where, where can we best allow the Word to become flesh? And I think it becomes flesh whenever we are walking in relationship and community with people. And whatever I said last week, God is doing in my life. Somebody asks me this week, how did I get on with that? Yes? So you said last week you were going to forgive him. How did you get on with forgiving him? I mean, a whole seven days have passed. If you haven't done something with it, how is the word ever going to become flesh? What about our calling? We need to be who God's created us to be. The two most significant days in our lives are the day that we're born. And we celebrate that annually. Or if you're born on the 28th of February, <laughs> a little bit more irregularly. But the better day of your life is not just the day that you're born, because look around you, there's a lot of people who've been born. The best day of your life, in my opinion, is the day you realize why you're born. When you discover why God created you and God, why God placed you here on earth. Now, how is that going to happen in this kind of context? It's all a little bit ad hoc. 
I'm grateful, grateful for two people in my life. When I first became a Christian, I went along to a church called Hockley Pentecostal. I was a fish out of water. I had hair the size of this room. <laughs> Not exaggerating. And a waist as thin as a chair leg. That's big hair and a tiny waist. But there were two people in that congregation who did more for me than shake my hand. And at first, I was highly suspicious of them. Their names were Amrick and Lorna. And Amrick was a little Asian man who had a little bit of difficulty with English, but he came up to me and he said to me, you know, come to my house. I mean, that sounded more Jamaican than Indian, didn't it? <laughs> forgive me, forgive me. It's a poor representation. And so I felt compelled to come to his house. I remember driving in the dark trying to find this house. It was a row of terraced houses in Hansworth, and they all look exactly the same. And he gave me this description, and it could have been any of these houses, except that he said, there's a sign on the door that says, Jesus saves. Well, how can you find that in the dark? It was about that size. Okay, so I walked and walked and walked and walked and found Amrick's house, and I went in. The lights were on. There was a couple of other people there, and he sat down with me, and his wife, Lorna, sat down with me, and she opened the Bible and she began to talk from the Bible to me about my life and the things that she felt would be helpful to me as a, a new Christian. And you know, I would not have missed Monday nights for the world. I would not have missed it for the world. And I would travel all the way back from Scotland or wherever I was singing the night before to make sure I was back for that house group. They became family to me. They became home. When I had a problem, I didn't run to the pastors. No disrespect to the pastors. They seemed very busy. And although they were nice, they didn't seem to live in the world I lived in. But Amrick, Amrick would sit up until 2 or 3 in the morning answering questions for me on why my life was such a mess. And trust me, it was a mess. And then he'd get up at 5 o'clock and walk to work to be there for 6. Week after week after week after week. I didn't know that I was being discipled. I had no idea that what was happening. I just thought we were a bunch of Christians who enjoyed something of God's goodness. They taught me how to pray. They taught me how to read the Bible. I used to do Bible bingo. Does anybody still do Bible bingo? Lord, speak to me. Not that one. People do Bible bingo, don't they? Speak to me, God, one eye closed, one eye open, looking for the one that you want the answer to, you know. And I found and discovered that God was really brilliant and had all the answers to all the questions that I had about my life. And while church was great for celebration and we worshiped God and we danced and we sang and they wore hats, Played trombones, I'd never seen, it's like the Salvation Army on speed. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. You know, when I was raised a Catholic, you had to be miserable to go to church. And if you weren't miserable when you came in, you were certainly miserable the time you went out. So when I went to Hockley Pentecostal and people were dancing and singing and praising and thanking God personally, I was stunned. Stunned. It was absolutely amazing. But behind the scenes, I was broken and I needed people to help me become, or start at least the journey for me to become, life groups, small groups, call them whatever you like, I couldn't care less about the title. The ministry itself is the most profound, life-changing, life-giving, 
and Christ-forming ministry that you could ever, ever experience. So if you've got any intentions of becoming like Jesus, <laughs> don't be part of a crowd. Become part of a family. Become part of a group of people that actually move away from superficial hellos and how are you's to deep, deep love and affection and relationship. And you know what? I think all human beings long for that. I really believe all human beings want to be seen and heard and loved and cared for. I think God has placed those desires in our hearts and he created church to demonstrate what that kind of community could look like. And this is so much more than just having a sermon on a Sunday and singing a few songs to Jesus and going back to live our lives without anyone to walk alongside us through the high points and the low points. We are better than that. We have more to offer people than that. And so this is not just me having an idea and thinking, shall we do more life groups? Do we need more life group leaders? I believe what we're really doing is doing church in its original form. They met together in each other's homes with glad and sincere hearts. And in those contexts, in the small, God did a great work in the hearts of people. And in the corporate gatherings, they celebrated. You know, I want to say something to you. One of the things I noticed about church is that Everyone waits for the worship team or the pastor or whoever's leading it. You have given too much power to these people. Stop it. The Bible says you should come with a spiritual psalm or song or word of education, education, edification. You, you know, that's the early church. And how can you do that in a corporate setting? Here's where they did that. They did that in each other's homes. They would say, I'm going to meet Cynthia on Thursday. She's had a really rough time. God, give me a word for Cynthia. Come on, Holy Spirit. Show me what's going on in Cynthia's life. And they started praying in tongues. And seeking the heart of God for their sister Cynthia. I tell you what, when they got there, they couldn't wait to tell Cynthia what Jesus showed them. Leave him, Cynthia. Leave him. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Whatever it was. They came with a spiritual psalm, a song, a word of edification. Somebody was worried. They came and said, do not be worried. Jesus has it all in control. And I've been interceding for you this week. And I couldn't wait to get back to you on Thursday night and tell you. It's going to be different from here on in. Just trust God. Come on, come on, come on. You see, when you live like that, you're actually living as Jesus lived. Because Jesus started this whole thing with a small group. This whole thing started with a small group. And look, I don't know how many Christians there are in the world, but I would imagine there's quite a number of million of us. And it all came out of a small group. Anyway, how did Jesus do that? What was it that Jesus did that we should look at consider and model. Well, the first thing I want to suggest to you is that Jesus only ever worked with people or started this journey with people who were already seeking. If you go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, there's a wonderful dialogue here where John 
is talking to his disciples now. John the Baptist had a phenomenal ministry. People would turn up in the desert in their droves to hear John preach. And he only had one message, and that message was repentance. And he believed and expected that whenever he preached, people would be impacted by that message. And indeed they were. Now, I want you to think about this. They had no Twitter, no Facebook. There were no emails. There was no way of communicating. But whenever God is moving, people who are hungry, people who are thirsty will find him. They'll come searching for him. So out in the middle of nowhere, something amazing is happening. And Jesus said of John, if you ever underestimate his ministry, he came as a herald. He came to declare the great thing that God was about to do. In John, uh, we see this wonderful anointing on his life to break the hard ground so that when Jesus came, there would be an openness to what God. God hadn't spoken to the Israeli people for hundreds of years, and suddenly this prophetic voice turns up on the scene, and it begins to cause havoc for the religious leaders. Now, John was Jesus' first cousin, and so in Mark chapter 1, we see this dialogue between Jesus and John as John begins to open up for his disciples, who were already schooled in the art of repentance, a greater opportunity. And... Uh, when John introduces Jesus to his disciples, it's interesting to me how Jesus responds. Now remember, these are hardcore, hardcore repentant people. Have you ever seen, um, have you ever seen uh, young men and women who come out of Teen Challenge? Now, if you're ever around somebody who comes out of Teen Challenge, there's no gray areas. You're either saved or you're going to hell. Okay, It's black and white. Why? Because they lived on the doorstep of that for so long. It's clear to them. It's as clear as as clear can, can be. And for them, you're either saved or you're not saved. None of this, I go to church, I love Jesus, I'm spiritual. Are you born again? I don't know. Then you're not. Now, that, that is because they have come through a particular process where they had to be really, really ruthless with their own hearts. And so to say that they were a follower of Jesus and for that not to turn up in the way they lived their lives is inconceivable. If you say you love Jesus, this is how your life should look. Now, we haven't all been drug addicts and we haven't all been alcoholics, so we haven't all come to Jesus in the same way. And I think in some senses... We almost don't have the same conviction about whether we are or we're not saved. Some of us think we're still being saved and we've been walking with Jesus for 50 years. And theologically, you kind of are because we're always being saved. But you don't have that one moment where there's clarity. You say, once I was lost and now, I mean, you sing the song. But here's the truth. You didn't feel that lost. And you're not quite sure that you're that found. And so we have this ambiguity, which I think for many reasons causes us not to think clearly about some things pertaining to our spiritual journey. But if you come from Teen Challenge, you know. Once I was an alcoholic, and now I'm not an alcoholic. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, glory to God, amen. 
or however you word that. That's, it's a, there's a line. There's a line. There's a clear moment when you stepped out of your sin and your shame and your separation from Jesus and you stepped into the redemptive power of the God who saves. It's almost, I think, something some of us have missed or maybe could need or could do within our lives. I think it makes things a lot clearer and maybe a little easier in some senses because you haven't got some of those complexities about whether you're in, you're out, you're shaking it all about. That's spiritual hokey-cokeyism, which there is a move of in this current dispensation. I won't go there. Okay. Now, John the Baptist's disciples were more hardcore than that. And they're dialoguing with John in the Mark Gospel here, the first chapter, about salvation and eternal life. And John, and this is a great credit to John, he sees Jesus walking towards him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. In other words, he's transferring his disciples to Jesus. And he uses this phrase, he must increase and I must decrease. I, won't, I always think I want to help you here because we think we do it the other way around. I must decrease so he must increase. You will never decrease unless he is increasing. You are way too selfish for that, as am I. Amen? Amen. So he's handing these men, these young men, they'd be probably 15, 16, 17, over to Jesus. Now I want you to look at this particular verse. It's a very interesting verse to me. Jesus does not dialogue with them by saying, are you truly righteous in the eyes of God? Which was a big issue to these men. Are you going to spend eternity with God? There's no theological prowess around their introduction to Jesus. In fact, they ask him a question which I think is important for us They say this to Jesus, to the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. They say, where do you live? Now, what are they asking? Address? Street? Location? No, it's far more deep than that. They're saying, for us to truly accept you, as the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, we need to see you in your context. We need to see you in your home. Now, I love that because, you know, we're all brilliant Christians on a Sunday. <laughs> Hallelujah, praise the Lord, glory to God. <sighs> Monday morning, whoo! It's a whole other story, isn't it? I love Christians. They, Jesus has made me meek and mild. Well, I saw you in the buffet. There was nothing meek or mild about you in that buffet. You were a man on a mission. And now none of us have any chicken legs because you've got them all on your plate. Always blessed to be last. Of course, Pastor. <laughs> so what they're saying indirectly is we want to see you in your context, we want to see you with your guard down. We want to see you outside of the parameters of religious establishments. We want to see you away from the crowds where you might be playing in some kind of way this spiritual act. We want to see you 
with your vest on. We want to see you without the trappings of pretense. And look what Jesus says to him. Sorry, I'm in the wrong one. That's why you're looking at me strange. It's John 1, actually. Jesus says, come see. Come see. So we've got this wonderful moment where these two young men are being translated from the ministry of John the Baptist and being taken into the discipleship small group program of Jesus and notice that his introduction to them is not what they believe. His introduction to them is come and see. John 1, 39 to 40. Come and see. And look what it says. They went and saw the place where Jesus was staying. The time was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And they stayed with Jesus the rest of the day. Andrew was one of those two followers of John who heard John speak and went after Jesus. He was Simon Peter's brother. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, and he said, we have found the Messiah. And the word Messiah means the Christ, the messenger of God. So they went to see. What does this teach us about how we engage with people who are around us, connected to us loosely, maybe part of this congregation in the widest context, is I tell you two things. The first thing is this. Those individuals at some level have to be seekers. They have to be seekers. Now, seekers come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? Some people are seeking without a conscious awareness that they're seeking. When I, before I became a Christian, I was into transcendental meditation. I was into Buddhism, uh, reincarnation. I read so many things because I was looking for the right thing. But like so many people, I was looking in all the wrong places. I knew there was something more to this life than living and dying. There was someone more, and I needed to experience that. Wherever I would find that. Now, seekers are not always conscious that they're seeking. So we should never be presumptive that they're not. It's really important you don't make that decision for someone else when you haven't really made it that well for yourself. Never say someone's no for them. Amen? So seekers. Seekers have this hankering to experience something more than the life they have. And whether they're trying to find it in alcohol or drugs or relationships or power or money or status, what we need to do is become really spiritually intelligent and start looking at those things that people are pursuing and have a very good apologetic to say, you are genuinely a seeker, but let me show you where to find what you're really looking for. So when we gather like this, there may be seekers here. Can I just say something to add to that? If you ever stop being a seeker, you stop following Jesus. 
You cannot settle and stagnate as a disciple. There is always more to discover. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Don't think because you've got a little set of scriptures that you have the full handle on who God is. Don't think because you have a theological degree you have the full handle on who God is. I've been around people with theological degrees for the last 35 years. We are always, will always, can't stop being those who set their hearts to pilgrimage. There are deep places in God that God has assigned for you to discover. And if you're not a seeker, you will not be looking for them. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. There's a lifetime's exploration. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Jesus is highlighting to us that just as he is a seeker, he came to seek and to save that which is lost, that we partner in that seeking process as we seek life and we seek hope and we seek peace and we seek truth. We are always going to be seekers. Amen? Amen. Now, Jesus didn't say, I want you to believe four or five theological points before you can join in. <laughs> Did he? You know, one of the greatest success stories in Christianity in the last 20 years is the Alpha Course. And um, many people have done research on why Alpha has been so successful at taking the truth of Jesus and making it accessible to people who are seekers. Accidental tourists, maybe. Some people end up in Alpha thinking they're coming out for a meal because they've been conned by a Christian. <laughs> We're just going to a meal at the church. Can I tell you, please don't do that. Please don't pretend to somebody that you're taking them to something that isn't what it truly is. You will do more damage in that process than you do good. Say the church is going to have a little chat to you about some things to do with life and God and stuff, but you get a free meal out of it. That's honest. <laughs> you know, it, and it's, if it's anything to do with how the Anglicans do it, it's only 10 minutes. So you haven't got long to wait for the food. If it's Pentecost to go on for three hours, that's a bigger ask. It's a bigger ask. Okay. And my 12th point. <laughs> okay. So don't, don't lie to people. Don't cover up the truth. Because I, I tell you what, I've, been, I've done so many Alpha courses. People say to me, I thought this was a meal. <laughs> well, it is eventually. I mean, you might need a shave by the time we get to it. <laughs> so what is it about Alpha that's made it so successful? People get to belong before they believe. And what we're seeing in Alpha as a model is the model of Jesus. Come see. Come be part of my home. Come sit around in my lounge. Come and find out for yourself whether this is or it doesn't work for you. And it must have worked for these guys. Because they were only popping in. But the scriptures tell us that it was late in the day... By the time they left. You think God is frightened of scrutiny? Do you think there's anything about Jesus that isn't highly attractive? 
Do you think it's something in the heart of God that he would want to put people through hoops before they could find the very thing they were created to live in, which is his love? There's nothing about that that reflects the heart of God. God made a way where there was no way. Now, we could do a little study here on the house of God. That whole concept runs from the Old Testament right the way through. So what Jesus is saying to them, no strings attached, lads. Come and suck it and see. Come and find out for yourself. He is highly intentional about that invitation. It's not accidental. It's not coincidental. He's highly intentional. Here's what I think we don't do, and I tell you the reasons why I don't think we do it. We don't say, come to my house, have a meal with us. If you were coming, I tell you what, we'd wash the floor. Because normally we'd, we live like pigs. No, we've got builders in, or they're just out. So it's not great. We get the best china out. Now, in my house, for the longest point, I don't think we need any laundry area because the laundry area is the dining room. I mean, it's like a Chinese laundry in my house some weeks. There's things hanging over things. and Is it like that in yours? Tell the truth. But if I was coming or you were coming, we might tidy up. Am I wrong? We'd be very careful about what we talk about at the dinner table. I am so grateful to Jesus that I'm married because my wife tells me what I can say and what I can't say. And without that, I'm sure I would have blown my life apart many, many times. When we're going anywhere, Jane says, don't mention that. You're not to mention that. It usually comes in a roundabout way. Please don't say that. Whatever you do, don't mention this to them. I have so many instructions. I'm so confused. You know, I'm a man. I can only do one thing at one time. What am I supposed to do with 12 instructions? If they offer you extra food, don't take it. Remember, there's other people at the table. And whatever you do, don't mention the Eurovision. <laughs> I am so petrified of getting it wrong. And like most people, when I am in that position, I get it all wrong. I say all the wrong things. I eat too much food. <laughs> Jesus could say, come see, because what you saw in public was exactly what you saw in private. Jesus could say, come and have a look around, see what you think, because he had nothing to hide and everything to offer. Jesus could say, come and sit on my sofa. We might even turn the telly off here. I mean, heaven forbid, in some houses I visited, the telly's on all the time. We're praying in the name of Jesus, and we've got Good Morning Britain on in the background. It's very difficult to feel spiritual. It's very difficult to feel spiritual when you've got Phil going on. I was wondering in the background about this game that comes down. Have you seen that thing? That's the most ridiculous thing. It comes down from the sky. There's nothing in it, and nobody wants it. It sounds like church. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. I digress. When you're living an authentic spiritual life, you don't have any qualms about inviting people because there's nothing to hide 
Because you're hidden in Christ Jesus. And when you're living an authentic life, you know that even in your brokenness and weakness, somehow God will use it for his glory and his name will be honored. I, I think Paul says this phrase, it's frightening. He says to Timothy, do what I do. I don't know many leaders who can say that without a little twinge of fear because not everything I do, as you already know from that joke, not everything I do is right. So invitation. No expectation, just invitation. Utter freedom to make the choices they need to make about the decisions they want to do. Go to Mark 1 now. We're eventually at Mark 1. Here's the second thing that Jesus did in developing his small group. He called people to purpose. You know, we don't say this because we venerated the men and women in the Scriptures, but they were quite ordinary individuals. I mean, if you do a little research on some of these disciples, they were only free to be Jesus' disciples because nobody else in the synagogue wanted them. When a boy got to a certain age, he would be taken under the, the, the care of a disciple maker, somebody who would, a rabbi, who would teach him a particular viewpoint on, on the first five books of the Bible. And these men are nowhere to be seen in that. They're out fishing and doing whatever they do. So they weren't the cream of the crop. They were the rejects of society in some senses, particularly spiritually. And I don't know if you think about this, but I've not met many fishermen, but every second word that comes out of their mouth isn't, thine be the glory. I don't know if you've come across people who work with their hands or, or guys who work together in, in groups. They tend not to be praising Jesus in the van on the way to the gig. And, and when the hammer hits their thumb, it's not hallelujah that comes out. So it seems to me that Jesus is once again being very specific and uh, strategic in what he's doing. So in Mark 1 verse 17 we see this wonderful story of Peter, who's the expert fisherman, comes from a long line of fisher people, fisher people, fishy people, <laughs> and, and he, sees, he sees something. Now, I want to talk to you about that because this is important. When Jesus says, come follow me, he's not inviting people to sit around observing his life. He's actually exposing them to the kingdom of God. And what happened to Peter on this particular day changed his worldview forever. So Peter, being the expert fisherman, is told by the rabbi, who everybody's highly suspicious of, okay, put your net over here. Go out and cast your net over here. And you know the story. There's so much of a blessing that comes as they follow the instructions of Jesus that they have to get their competitors, I love that, to come and help them carry the fish ashore. What God did for one became mutually beneficial to all, okay, and the economy lifted up a notch in that area because that would have meant that people had more money, their families would have been fed better, their taxes would have been paid quicker. It isn't just a fishing story, it's a whole elevation story, 
And it happened as a result of being obedient to the voice of a man who looks on the surface like he knew nothing. So what was Jesus doing? Why did Jesus introduce himself to Peter in such a specific way? Because Peter's whole life would be about the impossible. And his initiation into the kingdom was to see that with God, nothing is impossible. Peter's whole life was about getting by and getting enough food. And suddenly, abundance upon abundance upon abundance is his introduction to Jesus and the kingdom. Why? Because on the day of Pentecost, that which happened in the natural now is happening in the supernatural. And on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 fish came into the net of the love of God and a city was turned upside down and inside out and it still continues to affect even people today. So God calls us to see Him as He is. That's the invitation. No holes barred, nothing hidden. Come and see for yourself. The second thing God does for us is He says, let me expose you to the kingdom. Let me expose you to the fullness, their small lives that day were caught up in the cosmic reality that Christ has supremacy over every single thing. In a heartbeat, they realized that this isn't some fancy speaker that has a lot of nice things to say to keep us sweet. This is the Messiah. And that's why Peter falls to his face and says, go away from me, Lord, for I am unclean. He recognized with great clarity that what was happening to him was a moment of destiny. He was ordinary, uninteresting, and without much hope, living on the dregs of his business. And in a day, he was called into the cosmic mission of Christ to see the world transformed for the glory of God. When you invite somebody to your small group, you need to be honest and authentic about who you are. People see through the, the fakery anyway. The second thing you need to do is expose them, more importantly, to who Christ really is. What Christ is really like, His power, His glory. My God is able to do immeasurably more. Do you know some of the places where there's more doubt in the church is in the small group settings? If you want to be like Jesus, I'm finishing now. We didn't get to the other points. If you want to be like Jesus, Jesus was not just a preacher of good news. He was good news himself. The word had become flesh and he dwelt amongst us. If you want to be a good life group leader or a good leader of any, let the word become flesh in you. Stop spouting scripture and start acting it out. Start living out what Christ has already shown you to be true. Jesus moved in signs and wonders. I find it absolutely stunning. Becca has been to a church somewhere down south, um, and she decided, I think, in boldness to step out in the supernatural. She's exploring that, and I'm encouraging her to do that. And that night, I think, Natasha, you were there too. We had, they had these one, stand up for me, girls. They, these wonderful young ladies had words of knowledge over kids who were disinterested in everything that was happening in the room. And I tell you what, there's something about being exposed to the supernatural reality of God that grabs everybody's attention. I mean, you can say the fanciest things you like or even talk about the most current things people are experiencing. But the minute people see the kingdom, they are smitten with God because there's nowhere else to go. The Apostle Peter writes these words, whom 
Where will I go, God, from? No one else has the words of eternal life. There's something about you, Jesus. You drive me mad. I cannot get enough of you, Jesus. You can sit down, girls. <laughs> cannot get enough of you, Jesus, because there's something about you. Everywhere you go, the kingdom breaks out in the most unlikely people and the most unlikely spaces. So if we want to be disciples of Jesus... We can't just say, well, I like to preach the Bible. We need also to demonstrate the power of God. Oh, that went down well. (laughs) And we need to do works of service. You know, if you want your house group, life group to grow, get them to serve in the church. Better still, get them to serve outside the church. Go join another food bank somewhere. It's always more blessed to give than it is to receive. And the ways of Jesus. What are the ways of Jesus? Well, the ways of Jesus, I think, are simply compassion and mercy. Walking in humility with people that creates an opportunity for the kingdom of God to expose people to a greater life than the one they've got. I'm telling you, as best I can tell you, and scratching my head and rubbing my tully at the same time. I'm telling you that you and I need to get ready for what God wants to do on the earth And the only possible way we can contain that is by raising up small groups that facilitate the heart of God to see people become more like Jesus Christ. We need to put down our guard, lay down our drawbridge and say, come, I'm not perfect. It's not me you're seeking anyway, it's Jesus. And actually, let me expose you to something that God's done. Wonders, works, let me serve with you in some way. And let me walk the word out with you in community so it becomes a reality for you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. I'm one minute over. Um, uh, Saints, sorry, this is really random. Sorry, Pastor. I just felt that um, the Lord say this to me. Um, Saints, can we all stand and reach our hands towards Pastor? Um, as, as <laughs> I think as a leader who's preaching and teaching us about the small groups, it's important to cover our leader um, as he does this. Um, sometimes the leader can pour out so much. And like when, when, when Christ is walking with the disciples, um, at a point he said, I'm tired. And he told the disciples to go get food because he was tired of his journey. And because he, he kept on pouring out. So as, 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 we need, as our leader is pouring out into us, we need to be able to pour out into him as well. We need to feed him. We need to be able to be there for him, to cater towards him. And as he's talking to us about the importance of these small groups and coming together as a family, we need to remember that we are a body of Christ. And we must empower our leader as much as empowering us. So let's just all put a prayer before God, before him and before God to, to, to strengthen him and help him in this season where God is bringing him out and taking him to a season where he's leading us to many great things through him. So if, any, if there's any elders or anything here that can come forward and just cover him under the blood, because where there is elevation, the enemy will attack and the enemy will try and bring him down. But we just thank God for the covering. We thank God that he's covered him over his mighty wing. We pray Psalms 91 will get around him right now in Jesus' name. We pray that every valley, every shadow that comes with God's rod and his staff will comfort him. That goodness and mercy shall continue to follow him. That God will feed into him. That wisdom will cover him. That angels will cover him. That, that God will shadow his very family, his children, his wife, Jesus, his very household. Every thought that he has, every word that comes out of his mouth will be ushered by the beautiful glory, grace, and mercy of God. We cover you 
you in the name of Jesus, Pastor Simon, in everything that you go through, in everything that you go through, in Jesus' name, we cover you from the sole of your head, from the sole of your feet to the crown of your head. In Jesus' name, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every word that you speak will come straight from the heavenly realms. In Jesus' name, we thank you for your life. Amen. And we honor you as the lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank amen. You.